This is a podcast from Seven Vineyard. I wonder if you've ever um, been in an argument or a debate or trying to have been trying to persuade somebody of something that's really important to you and you know you're just not getting anywhere with them. And they turn around and say, Well, we'll just have to do, agree to disagree. You know, it's so frustrating, isn't it? It completely stops the conversation dead in its tracks. Or what about when someone, um, what about when there's something that you're really wanting, that you're hoping for, you're longing for, and you don't get it, and you're absolutely gutted, and then someone says to you, oh, well, you win some, you lose some. You know, what can you say to that? You know, that phrase is meant with good intentions, but in that moment, it really is not comforting at all. And there's nothing more you can say. Like the time that my mum said to me when I was 17 and utterly distraught because Owen um, had told me that he didn't think he loved me anymore. When I was 17, <laughs> and my mum said to me, oh, wow, there's plenty more fish in the sea. <laughs> and of course, she was only trying to help, and I'm sure I've said similar things to my kids. But really, it wasn't what I wanted to hear. It didn't acknowledge the issue. And in effect, it closed it down and said, move on. Um, phrases like these are known as, not, luckily I didn't as you can see, 31 years later. Um, phrases like these are known as thought terminating cliches. A thought terminating cliche is an easily memorized short phrase that shuts down discussion, debate or questioning. And they are a loaded type of language that many of us use regularly all the time. And there's loads of them. So things like, it is what it is. It's a matter of opinion. Each to their own. Rules are rules. It's all relative. Boys will be boys. There's nothing more to say when someone says something like that. They are a quick, easy way to answer hard questions or end an argument when you don't know what else to say. These thought-terminating cliches sound authoritative and trick people into believing they are insightful or an answer to a hard question, but really, they are a loaded type of language that represent false thinking. A few others you may have heard of. It must be God's plan. God's in control. God must know what he's doing. It'll be all right in the end. On the face of it, there may be some truth in what's said. And on the surface, it may sound initially comforting. But when we are struggling, when we are in a difficult place, when we are deeply hurting, these answers really fall a long way short of being anything helpful. Take, for example, the recent earthquake in Turkey and Syria, killing over 50,000 people. Or the little nine-year-old Olivia Pratt Corbel, who got shot and killed, killed by a bullet in her own home. 
God being in control or having a plan is a hard one to square in the face of tragedies like that. Answers like these, thought-terminating cliches, close down questioning and stop us connecting with the reality of what is actually happening. So, why is there so much suffering in the world? Why does God let bad things happen? Humans have struggled with this question for as long as humans have existed. And it's a question that can weigh heavy on us and be the reason why some people find it difficult to believe in a good God. And it's a question that I want us to explore today. Why does God let bad things happen? This talk is actually the second part to my last talk, Is God Good? The natural follow-on from asking, is God good, is to then ask, so why then do bad things happen? And so then, as promised from my last talk, we're going to tackle this second part today. And if you haven't yet managed to listen to my talk, is God good, don't worry. Um, but I would recommend, if you have time, to go back and have a little listen to it. It's on our website. But it's with this premise, this belief that God is good, that we are going to consider why then does he let bad things happen? How do we reconcile a good and by definition powerful God with the evil and suffering in the world we see around us? Now this isn't an easy subject and for some of us we might be struggling right now and I don't want to blunder my way through this difficult topic and for, uh, cause further pain. So let's just take a moment to pray. Father God, you know more than ever where each of us are at. You know what we carry. You know our questions, our struggles. Will you please speak to us now as we ex explore this topic? Will you open our ears to hear your voice and open our eyes to see you and see more of who you are? Amen. So why does God let bad things happen? Well, this is a big question, and big questions don't have easy answers. And if I'm totally honest with you, and it's probably no surprise, I'm not convinced there is a complete or even a good answer to this question. So you might find this talk a little bit disappointing in some ways. Um, but just because we may not find the answer to this question, it doesn't mean that we stop questioning. And along the way, we may find something that's helpful to us as we grapple with this. So I want to share with you just six brief thoughts or commonly held views in relation to this question. Now, I don't actually agree with all of them, but they are things you might have heard people say. And I think they are worth considering because they may either be helpful in themselves or it may be helpful to be able to exclude them. So the first consideration is, and I do agree with this one, is that it's okay to question. Throughout the Bible, we see many people asking God this same question of why do bad things happen? And rather than shutting down the conversation with thought-terminating cliches, I believe we see demonstrated in the Bible that God actively encourages us to acknowledge and explore and question this issue. One of the longest books in the Bible is the book of Job, and it's about nothing but these questions. 
One third of the Psalms, the songs and poems of the Old Testament are cries of the heart that come from anguish and pain, asking God why. They're called laments. There's even a book in the Bible called Lamentations. And here's a lament. It goes like this. Be merciful to me, Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow, my soul and body with grief. My life is consumed by anguish and my years by groaning. My strength fails because of my affliction. I am the utter contempt of my neighbours. I am forgotten as though I were dead. I have become like broken pottery. And the person saying this? The mighty King David, who slew Goliath, whose story we use as a metaphor for overcoming giants in our own lives. A lament is saying it's okay to respond to what happens in life with normal human emotions. We're not supposed to deny the reality. Feeling grief and responding emotionally is no way a lack of spirituality. We're not letting God down and we're not a failure when we feel that way. It's part of being authentically human. And Jesus is our assurance for that because as well as being fully God, he was also fully human. And in the lead up to the cross, in Mark chapter 14, it says that he was deeply distressed and troubled, overwhelmed with sorrow. That's Jesus. The shortest verse in the Bible in John 11 says Jesus wept. And the reason he wept was because his friend had died. On the cross, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He hadn't, of course because God has never forsaken anyone. It's not in his nature to do that, but it felt like that for Jesus. And if you're not sure about what I just said then, just have a listen to my talk on the 7th of November, 2021, um, called Why Does God Feel Distant? And I talk about that a little bit more then. But you know, it's natural for us to feel all of these emotions. We shouldn't deny them. So it's okay to question, it's okay to be real. We don't have to be super spiritual. Consideration number two, and this is one that I personally, I don't entirely agree with, um, but you may have heard people say, God is all powerful and he can do whatever he wants. The line of thinking says that because he is all powerful, God controls everything that happens in this world, every single detail of our lives and events. And because God is God, he can do whatever he pleases without having to explain himself. Now there's a thought terminating cliche if ever I heard one. This is the Calvinist view, which gives God the credit for everything. So you may hear people say, God is in control, it must be part of his plan. Or, it wouldn't happen if God didn't will it. And on, the, on one hand, it can feel comforting when you believe God is good to think that he is fully in control. But the problem with this thinking is that if God is in control of every little detail, that actually makes him responsible for all the evil and suffering in the world. In which case, I'm not sure God can be both in control of everything and good. I think it's one or the other, not both. And this doesn't fit with our understanding of free choice of God being a God who allows us freedom to choose in order to have a relationship with us that is real and authentic, where we're not puppets on a string or robots programmed and micromanaged by Almighty God. 
The idea of God being in control of every detail just doesn't add up to me. And besides, would we actually want that? Consideration number three. So another thing people say when we ask why does God let bad things happen is that we have to accept that sometimes we are part of the problem. That God has created us with freedom to make choices and therefore that allows us to make bad choices, including to live our lives selfishly. And the bad things in this world are not just the fault of really bad people, we have a part to play too. You know, we shouldn't blame God for the fact that millions are starving when the world that God made is easily able to produce more than enough food to feed everyone. We shouldn't blame God for homelessness when there are more than enough spare bedrooms to house everyone. Now, whilst this all may be true, it doesn't explain why God doesn't intervene more, why he doesn't do more to stop it happening. Surely he can differentiate like we can between over-controlling and only stepping in when really needed. And therefore, giving this reason that we might be part of the problem, whilst true, in my opinion, isn't an adequate answer when we're trying to answer this question. So I'd probably give this thought about a two out of 10, if I'm honest, and not my go-to answer when I'm trying to console a friend. Now, it is worth just clarifying something about control. That just because God does not control everything doesn't mean that he's not in control of some things. In the very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He's in charge of the beginning and the end of the big story, the story that we are part of and all the major waypoints along the way. They happen when he says they will. So things like creation, the coming of Jesus, ascending of the Holy Spirit, the return of Jesus, and loads of other things in between. Romans 5 says that Jesus came and died for us at just the right time. And Matthew 24 says that Jesus says that God knows the day and the hour when he will return in his fullness. And yet, the reason the Bible tells us to do certain things and to choose certain things is because God doesn't make everything happen. It's a partnership. The Bible encourages us to pray, to invite God to intervene, as m and many of us will have known times when he has done just that. So the way in which God has chosen to engage with this world and with us is a combination of that which is, which is fixed, the eternal will of God, and that which is flexible, the free will that we have as human beings. So the next consideration is that God works all things for good. Even though bad things are never good and they are never God, he can make them work together for good. Romans 8, 28 says that we know that in, that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. God is always working for our good. It doesn't take away the pain of what we're in. And it doesn't make it okay that what has happened has happened. But it does give us hope that this won't last forever, that good can come out of it. I remember when we first planted the church uh, 14 years ago, 
those first few years really took their toll on us. And I went through a period when the chronic pressure and uncertainty was getting to me so much that I began to lose weight, my hair was falling out, my period stopped. And for a variety of different reasons, it was a really painful time for us. But you know, I can honestly say that God turned it around for our good. So much so that I am actually grateful that we went through that time because I experienced something of the incredible grace of God towards me. I experienced him in a way that I had never experienced him before. And through it, I was stronger, more grounded and more free because of what happened. Now, of course, there are many things that we could never be grateful that they, could, they have happened. But we can be sure that God is always working for our good. And we see this in Jesus, don't we? His resurrected life from death is what he does. He breathes in new life. He renews. He redeems. He restores. That's what he does. Psalm 30 says, You've turned my mourning into joyful dancing. You've taken away my clothes of mourning and clothed me with joy. We may not know how long we're going to suffer for or how long we will mourn for. And as the book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible says, there is a time for these things and we can't rush them. But we can know that they won't last forever. And we do have hope. Consideration number five, and this is probably the one that I find the most helpful. And that's that Jesus participates in our suffering. The renowned writer Dorothy Sayers says it like this. Whatever reason God chose to make people as they are, suffering and subject to sorrows and death, he had the honesty and courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He himself has gone through the whole human experience from family life and hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair and death. God came as a human in Jesus so that he could connect to our reality. He suffered so that he would know what it feels like for us, mentally, emotionally, physically. Jesus can relate to everything that we are walking through, and he voluntarily, he he chose to do that because we matter that much to him. Jesus attunes to us. Attunement is defined as the reactiveness we have to another person and is an essential component that allows us to feel connected and close to someone else. And Dan Siegel says, when we attune with others, we allow our internal state to shift, to come resonant with the inner world of another. So in the most dramatic way, That is what Jesus did with us. The God of the universe allowed his own internal state to shift so he could resonate with our inner world. Isn't that incredible? 
And furthermore, the prophet Isaiah said this about Jesus. Despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering and by his wounds we are healed. Somehow, the suffering on the cross is a place of healing. Our healing comes from his wounding. The cross was not about God telling us what to believe, but showing us the kind of God we believe in. One who shares our pain and suffering. By his wounds, we are healed. And finally, Consideration number six, Jesus promises to always be with us. It's no accident that the very last verse of the very last chapter of the story of Jesus' life in, Matthew, in the Matthew's Gospel, the very last thing that Jesus says to them is this, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. And this is no surprise because God has been saying this all the way along. In Joshua, the book of Joshua, chapter 1, he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Kyle referred to Psalm 23 a couple of weeks ago. In verse 4, it says, Even though I walk through the darkest valley, and in another version, it says, The valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. There's only one thing worse than walking through the darkest valley. And that is walking through the darkest valley alone. But we are never alone. You are never alone. I am never alone. Knowing that God is with us personally can make all the difference between being able to carry on and not. I've always loved the well-known poem of Footprints in the Sand where through the most difficult times in life, the person notices only a single pair of footprints in the sand and God says to him, my son or my daughter, my precious child, I love you and I would never leave you. During your times of trial and suffering, when you see only one set of footprints, it was then that I carried you. Jesus is present with us. He participates in everything with us. And he promises to always be there. He's present, he participates, and he promises. So for these last few minutes today, I just want us to take a moment just to reflect on some of what I've said, covered a, a lot of ground there. And so what we're going to do to do this, we're just going to share in the Lord's Supper together, remembering Jesus, remembering his participa participation with us, his presence, his promises to us. And we've got juice, non-alcoholic juice, we've got bread and gluten-free bread and obviously the, the juice representing his blood and the bread representing his body broken for us. And as we reflect on Jesus, as we take this together, if there's anything that has stirred you today from what I've said, then just bring that to him right now. 
because he's here for each of us. He's here, he's present with us in this room. You may have found something encouraging or comforting that I've said, or it may be that it's touched a tender spot or unsettled you or challenged you. And whatever it is, wherever you're at, just bring it to Jesus because he understands us. He knows us inside out. He knows where we're at. He's in it with us. And he loves it when we're real with him and nothing shocks him. So we're going to put a bit of music on. We're going to put an image on the screen that may just help you as you reflect on Jesus and him participating with us. Or you may just prefer to close your eyes. But we're just going to take about five minutes for this. So in your own time, we'll put the music on. Grab yourself some juice and bread. Take it back to your seat. And then just eat it when you're ready as you just have a few moments, just you and Jesus.